For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to, the, led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. Stricken for the transgression of the people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. By his grace and mercy, may we hear May you hear his word preached for you. Let's pray together. Father, gracious Father, we're thankful for this, your word. Bless the reading of it, the hearing of it, and now the preaching of it. And I'd ask, Father, that you would remove uh, anything within your servant this morning that might hinder the hearing of your word. Whether that be pride or arrogance or even a cough. May those things be removed so that your people may be strengthened and encouraged. Plant the word within our hearts this morning that we might be changed. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, some 600 to 700 years before his birth, uh, God, through the prophet Isaiah, spoke of a Messiah. And that Messiah, uh, he designated... From around chapter 42, verse 142 through the end of 53 as a servant. 
in that passage and in, in, uh, that some of which you have been in uh, these last few weeks, um, they're called the servant songs. And this servant, Isaiah says, would do what the nation of Israel could not do and what we could not do for ourselves, and that is reconcile us to a holy God. And in Acts 8, uh, and in other places, but in Acts 8 in particular, we, we read uh, that that servant is in fact Jesus. As the, uh, as the word says in Acts 8, um, the eunuch, um, Philip, Philip comes up to the Ethiopian eunuch and asks this question. Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And the eunuch said to uh, Philip, about whom, I, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? And he is, we, we're shown in Acts 8 that he's reading, and this is remarkable to me, he's reading the same passage that we just read. And he says, about whom is this passage? And Philip opened his mouth. And began, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And if it's all right with you, that is what I would like to do today. Nothing fancy, nothing out of the box. Uh, simply, uh, I want you to see the Lord Jesus. I want you to see him high and lifted up. I want you to see him as the servant, as our servant. And so our outline is going to follow through this song. There are five stanzas. Each of the stanzas have three verses. And so our outline will have five points to them. Uh, I do want you to, it's okay, we're not going to be here till 2 o'clock. Uh, I'm going to do the best that I can uh, to share from this passage. There's no way I'm going to be able to touch upon everything that's here. Uh, so I know that when we're through, you're going to be thinking, but he didn't say this. That's okay. I know I didn't. Uh, and I want you to know that up front. And uh, hopefully that you will go home and continue to study uh, and be Berean-like as well. But what I have prepared, I hope, will uh, show us the Lord Jesus. Let's begin first with the first stanza and look at the promised servant. The last three verses of 52 are actually a summary statement for the entire song. Uh, in verse 13, there's language of success and exaltation. In verse 14, there's language of extreme and repulsive humiliation. And then in verse 15, there's language of cleansing as well as speechless awe. And because this is going to be fleshed out as we work through this song, I don't want to touch on those right now. Uh, I want us to come back to one particular point. And before I actually get to that point, I want us to notice the language of not only this first stanza, but the rest of the song. And it's language of promise. It's language of surety. Uh, we read that God is making promises of things to come, things that his servant will do. So we read things like Christ shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Uh, he shall see his offspring. Cleansing shall take place. The Lord shall prosper. Absolute surety that what he's talking about is in fact going to take place. But then if we look down at verse 14, we notice that it's, it's not written in future tense, it's written in past tense. And a lot of people get all bent out of shape about that and say, well, how could this be in past tense? And, and I've heard as I've, been listening to, um, as I've been listening to Ted, and I know he's explained this to you, but that's, that's the way prophetic language works. 
Uh, prophetic language will move back and forth between the past and, and the future, past, present, future tense. And the reason is that what's being communicated is what is to come in the future, what the prophet is explaining that is to come, and what is being pointed to is so sure it's as if it's already happened. So we've got this, again, the language of surety and promise. So with that said, look back at verse 13 and notice that God says that Christ, the servant, would act wisely. It's a promise. And in the Hebrew there, there's a combination of both wisdom and effectiveness in one word. So we learn that Christ is or was and is someone who knew exactly what to do in order to bring about a desired result. So what he was going to do was not going to be happenstance. It wasn't going to be off the cuff. It wasn't going to be something that he uh, was doing in reaction to something that he hadn't decided or planned. He wasn't going to waffle back and forth between uh, what he should do and what he shouldn't do as if he was indecisive in some way. There was a plan. There was a plan in place. He knew the plan. He knew it was the best plan. And he set his mind to carry out that plan. And he did, in fact, carry that plan out. So my question, and I want to follow each of these stanzas up with a few questions. And so my question following that stanza is simply this. As we move into this new year in 2019, are you trusting in and resting in the surety of Jesus Christ as the promised servant? With all, that, with all that's come from, you know, with all the past of 2018, but with what's ahead in 2019, are you resting in the promise of the servant, Jesus Christ? And my hope and prayer is that you are, because we have the opportunity, we are blessed to be at this point in time in history, because we're not, as those who were hearing Isaiah originally, looking forward and looking to a promise. We are looking back at a promise fulfilled. And so we have the opportunity, we read from John 12 where Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John follows that up by saying he he said this to show what kind of death that he would undergo. And of course, the passage that we read this morning, our New Testament passage, Paul says in Philippians 2, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, what has God done? God has highly exalted him. Paul is, Paul is using the language from Isaiah 52 and 53. And we are able to look back and see that. Of that promise fulfilled. God said it would happen. He described it as already happening. It has happened. So I'd ask you this morning to to simply behold the promised servant. The second stanza shows us a rejected servant. In verse 2 and 3 of chapter 53. Isaiah describes Jesus as a young, vulnerable, weak, and fragile root that was coming out of Dry ground, and, and I'm sure all of you have seen it. You've seen a dry lake or a dry creek bed uh, where it, it's so solid and there's so much, or there's so, such a lack of water that there are cracks in the dirt. Picture that, that dry ground and those cracks and this small, little, vulnerable, weak root coming forward or sprout coming up. 
in the midst of nothing else. And among many things that he's communicating there, one is the fact that he's describing the the very unexpected and inauspicious beginning of the servant. And we see this in Christ. We've talked about it this past Christmas. He was born to parents who were just pretty average. Uh, Born in a shepherd's cave, uh, laid, no fanfare whatsoever, uh, laid in a feeding trough. Or kind of carved out of the side there among animals. Uh, a few scraggly shepherds show up. Within, within days, he's, um, they're, they're, run, they're running off actually. They're, they're leaving, um, being displaced. And they spend time without a home for several years. So there really isn't anything kingly about him. Other than he is from the line of David. But as far as his beginning is concerned, nothing truly kingly. And these things didn't change as he got older. Actually, they got worse. The language there, we see that there wasn't anything uh, that would impress anybody. There wasn't anything about him physically. He wasn't really handsome. Uh, There wasn't anything that would cause him to stand out or to cause heads to turn in his direction. Actually, it was just the opposite. There wasn't anything that would draw attention to him or set him apart. Uh, I, I picture him as being someone kind of like me that would blend in more uh, in, in a room than take the room by some type of gregarious charisma. And Isaiah says that the people would respond to that ordinariness and it would not be good. And that is a word. I looked it up. Apart from divine intervention, people will reject him, despise him, ignore him, and even mock him. There was no way in their minds that the Messiah could be that ordinary. And that word that we see there, esteem, it's an accounting term. And it actually means that when everybody stood back and they, and they looked at him and they kind of assessed him and, you know, from, from what he looked like to what he wore to how he acted... They added it all up and they came up with a big fat zero. And Isaiah is clear as what kind of effect this had on the Lord Jesus. Being ridiculed, being mocked, being left alone, scorned. As as he dwelt among us, this created a very deep, deep sorrow. He, he knows far more than just how it felt to be. We, we tend to downplay that. I'm sorry, we do. He knew more than just how it felt to be sad. The language here is this deep, deep grief that characterizes him. And it was at his core continually. So my questions... Following the stanza of this, have you been rejecting, despising, ignoring, and even mocking Christ? If so, can I tell you I have good news? And the good news is we know from the language here that Isaiah counted him among those who used to do that. Isaiah was one. That mocked. Isaiah was one like me, like you, who in fact at at one time... were involved in that kind of rejection. 
But notice, because he says in verses 2 and 3, he uses the pronoun we. But notice that something happened to Isaiah. Something happened, and we learned this back in Isaiah chapter 6. And what was that? Well, he had experienced the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord had been revealed to him. His sin had been shown to him. He recognized that sin. He confessed his sin. And salvation had come to him. And so let me encourage you this morning. If you find yourself, if you've never confessed the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've been in that camp. And and continue to be in that camp of that mocking and that rejecting. Because you know what? He's just too ordinary. Let me suggest to you that it is that ordinariness. That actually qualifies him, not disqualifies him. It's that ordinariness that qualifies him to be your savior and mine. He is the only one, again, as we read from Philippians 2, who can save us because he is the only one who left the comfort and glory of the right hand of the Father, remained God, took on flesh, dwelt among us, and entered into the suffering, the sorrow, the rejection, the disdain, and the weaknesses that are all a part of being human. He knows it. And He did it to salvage us. To redeem us. To set us free. And we, because of that, we can cast our cares upon Him. We can run to Him. We can trust Him. He knows us. He understands us. He knows our sadness. He does know our sadness and our grief. But so much more. And I encourage you this morning to look to Him. Behold the rejected servant. Stanza three speaks of the suffering servant. And it's probably the most recognizable of the stanzas that we hear most often. Um, And it's because there's very clear and concise language regarding penal substitutionary atonement. And don't get scared away by the language. Uh, Penal simply means... It refers to the punishment that's experienced and the price paid for sin. Substitutionary means that it was done in or refers to something that is being done on behalf of another, in the place of another. And so in these three verses, Isaiah says, and notice the language, Christ was stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced through, crushed, chastised, and wounded to the point of death. And this is where we need to go back to chapter 52. Because in chapter 52, verse 14, notice it says this punishment left him marred beyond looking human. Beyond looking human. And the question is why? And Isaiah answers that. For our transgressions. Our willful rebellion for our iniquities that that very the perversion of our very nature. He did it to deal with every aspect of our need, not his. He bore every moral and spiritual wrong, all the guilt that was ours, our griefs, our sorrows, everything and anything that alienated us from God, He took upon Himself in our place. 
He handled it on our behalf. And Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, for our sake, for your sake, for my sake, God, He, God, made Him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God. Substitutionary atonement. Isaiah 52 and 53. Despite the fact that we all went our own way and really actually in the opposite direction of God, He intervened. We go back again to 52 in verse 13 and the language there, that sprinkling, that is really language from Leviticus 16. Christ was both, we read, Christ was both the sacrificial lamb and the scapegoat. He shed His blood for us. Our sin was laid upon Him to carry away for us. And as a result, God's wrath has been satisfied. Payment's been made. And we have been restored to fellowship with Him. We're at peace. Then we also go back to 50, 52, uh, chapter 52, verse 15, because this is where the speechlessness comes in. It's a natural response of respect and being overwhelmed at what had been done and how he did it. I love how one commentator put it. He said, the one that people regarded as unclean turned out to be the one who cleanses others. It's a paradox so astounding that it will dry up every accusation and cause every mouth to be stopped. The wisdom of God displayed in the servant will utterly confound human wisdom. So my questions this morning. Um, first, for those who have professed Christ, for those who are trusting in Christ for their salvation... For those who are resting in His imputed righteousness, His his active and passive work on your behalf. When you think of Christ's sacrifice, how do you respond? When you consider His payment of your sin and the free offer of the gospel, are you still in awe? Every time you hear the words, His body given for you, His blood shed for you. Are you confounded? Are you in awe? Is there ever a time when you remain speechless? And of course, for anyone, again, that is not a believer this morning, will you acknowledge your separation from God? Would you acknowledge your need for a Savior? And will you come to the only one who can save you? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold and look to Christ, the suffering servant. The fourth stanza focuses on Christ, the submissive servant. Isaiah says, though he was oppressed and afflicted, though he was unjustly tried, unjustly convicted, unjustly sentenced to death, unjustly crucified, he never once offered any type of verbal or physical resistance. And we see this clearly 
In places like Matthew, it says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer. Not even to a single charge. And what happened? It says the governor was amazed. He was never violent, never lied. There was never any wickedness in his heart. There was never any ulterior motive on his mind. Every step was voluntary. Again, another commentator said, was not, Christ was not caught in a web of events or simply letting everything happen. No, he masterfully decided, accepted, and submitted with a clear-headed, self-restraining voluntariness as he fulfilled a sin-bearing exercise. Why is that important? A willful and rebellious sinner like you and me needs a willful and consenting substitute. It's why the blood that's one of the reasons why the blood of bulls and goats wouldn't satisfy. We choose our sin. He chose to make payment. We choose to rebel. He chose to submit himself in our place. Now, because Peter uses this section to encourage us. I thought I would do the same rather than reinvent the wheel. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter encourages his readers and us with this passage to follow Christ's example. And he says we are to follow Christ's example in that he was, he was unjustly treated and reviled and suffered at the hands of others and didn't respond. And he encourages his readers and he encourages us to respond in the same way. When we're unjustly treated, when we suffer at the hands of others, we're not to respond. And he, he can use that language, he can use this passage for, for one particular reason, I think. And that is because his, Christ and His cross are not only an example, but Christ and His cross provide the power we need to actually do it. Apart from God's grace, we, we can't. Apart from the cross, apart from Christ, we would never be able to do that. It's not in us to do. And so we can look to the cross, we can look to Christ as an example, but more than that, we look to Christ, we look, at, look to the cross because it is Him and His cross and what He has done that provides us with the power to fulfill what Peter is asking us to do. And so my questions, of course, are, are, are pretty much obvious. Are you entrusting yourself to Christ to be the ultimate judge? Well, finally, the last, the last stanza in verses 10 to 12, Isaiah describes the successful servant. The stanza begins with Isaiah saying it was the Lord's will to crush him. Now, that doesn't mean he was happy about it. It wasn't pleasurable in any way, but it was his desire. It was his plan 
But remember, because Christ was the submissive servant, not only was it the will for the Father to crush him, Christ himself willingly, joyfully, and lovingly embraced that will. And why? How could he do that? And Isaiah answers, because he knew he would be successful. He knew he would be successful. Verse 14 says it was out of the anguish of his soul that he was satisfied. The writer of Hebrews puts it another way. He says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, despising its shame. He saw the result. He saw the many becoming righteous and those many becoming righteous was worth the bearing of their iniquities. And so we see this promised language again. He will see his offspring. He will prosper. He shall or will make many to be accounted righteous. He will bear their iniquities. He was poured out. Uh, He makes intercession. And and this is so very important for us to understand. His, His satisfaction and his joy was not in the fact that he simply made salvation possible for everyone. His satisfaction and joy was not due to securing the possibility of salvation because he went halfway and was expecting others to meet him there. God is not sitting on the edge of his seat Wishing and hoping that someone would come to make the sacrifice of his son worth it. He was successful. He redeemed the people. He saved them from their sin. Remember, he shall act wisely. His joy and his satisfaction. He endured the cross and experienced that anguish because he would be and was successful. He bore the sin of many. Those for whom he died will be saved. Those for whom he died will be his and he will be theirs. And the language is that's his reward. Let that sink in a minute. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this being his church... You are his reward. And he is yours. Behold the successful servant. I'm sure you sang this at some point, and, and I wish I had. And actually, it's my fault. I did get the bulletin in advance, and I wish I had seen that hymn her- earlier. But uh, the, uh, anyway, so we sing, what child is this? You sang, what child is this? Why lies he in such mean a state where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christian, fear. For sinners here, the silent word is pleading. Nails. Spear shall pierce him through the cross he bore for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. 
Brothers and sisters, on this first Sunday of the year, behold our promised, rejected, suffering, submissive, successful servant. Trust in Him. Trust in Him. Let's pray together.